Our text this morning is in the book of Romans. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace, in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, thank you, Nikki. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of Romans. And as we do, we come to an awesome passage of scripture. And that this passage is obviously relevant for all of us here in this room this morning, but this passage is particularly relevant for a certain group of people here this morning. That, that doesn't mean then that, that the rest of you can just kind of doze off and sleep over the next 40 minutes or so. Um, there's application for all of us here, but it does mean that this passage is particularly relevant for a particular group of people here. And, and that particular group of, of people that I'm referring to, that this passage is particularly relevant for, are those that are here this morning that are true, genuine Christians who struggle with being sure of your salvation. In other words, you're, you're, you're really a Christian, like you've really been born again. Like, God has caused your spiritually dead heart to come alive. That's true. That's an objective fact. But there are times in which you wrestle with or struggle with whether or not you're really a Christian and whether or not you're really saved. And when the day of judgment comes, whether or not God is going to allow you into his kingdom or not, or if he's going to pour out his wrath upon you. And you, you, there are times that you go through your week or your month in which you begin to have doubts and uncertainty as to whether or not you're really saved, whether or not you're really a Christian. And so I'm not talking to or specifically about those who think they're Christians and aren't Christians, like that's a whole nother sermon. Everybody with me? That, that's not this sermon. Instead, this passage is particularly relevant 
for those who are Christians but who doubt it at times and are uncertain about it at times. The way that we see that within this passage this morning is, is really found in one specific word that is used over and over again throughout this passage. And that one word that's used over and over again throughout this passage that, that Paul is really trying to highlight and trying to shine the spotlight on when it comes to the major theme of this passage, it's the word hope. It's the word hope. You, you see it there. You might want to underline it or, or circle it within this passage. You see its first use there in verse 2. You see it used again in verse 4. And then you see it again in verse 5. That that's the main theme, that that's the main point that Paul is trying to highlight within this passage. And everything else within this passage simply explains or unpacks or helps support this whole idea of, of hope that we see that Paul is emphasizing here within this passage. Which then begs this question. If that's the main theme and point of this passage, hope, then what exactly is hope? What, what does it mean to have hope? What, what is this hope that Paul is talking about within this particular passage of Scripture? Well, biblically speaking, the, this whole idea of hope means more than, more than just wishful thinking. It means more than just, well, I hope I, I have steak tonight for dinner. Or I hope I, hope I, I pass that test and do well on that test. I, I hope the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. I, I hope, like I... I hope those things are ha will happen. I, I wish those things happen will happen. That's, that's not the biblical meaning of hope. That's not the type of hope that Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 5. Instead, the type of hope that Paul is referring to here in, in Romans 5 is, is a firm confidence. It's assurance. It's certainty. It's rock-solid confidence and rock-solid firm assurance and a, a deep-seated conviction that something is true and that something's going to happen. It's not just that you're wishing that it's going to happen. Like you're certain and confident and sure that it's going to happen. And there ain't nothing that's going to be able to change it. It's, it's true. And that's, that's what we're going to see within this passage, which then begs the question, what is the, what is the particular something that we as Christians can hope in, can have confidence in, and surety in, and certainty in. Do you know what it is? It's our eternal salvation. That we can be confident and sure and certain that on the day of judgment, we're going to be spared from God's wrath and enter into his eternal glory. That's not something we, we, as, we as true genuine Christians are to, are to wish and, and just hope that, that when that day comes, that, that that's what happens. Instead, this very day, this very moment, this morning, as true Christians, you, you can, we can be confident of that, sure of that, certain of, of that. And God wants us to be confident and sure and certain of that. So then that, that's my prayer this morning. Like if you are here this morning and you're a true, genuine Christian, 
that my prayer is that through the truths that we see within this passage of Scripture, that it would extinguish every doubt that you've ever had and every doubt that you may have in the future regarding your salvation. And instead, that you would leave here this morning with a, with a firm confidence and assurance that when the day of judgment comes, that God will spare you from his wrath and you'll enter into his eternal glory forever and ever and, and ever. Which then begs this question, how? In other words, like, that sounds great, but where does that sort of confidence come from? Where, where does that sort of assurance come from? Where does that sort of certainty come from? Well, that's what we're going to see within our passage this morning. We're going to see where this sort of hope, this sort of assurance, this sort of confidence of, of our eternal salvation, where it, where it ultimately comes from, where, it, where, it's, where it's found. And the first place we're going to see that it's found, and you can see this on your handout there, is this, is that this sort of assurance, this sort of confidence, this sort of hope, it comes from being justified by faith in Jesus. And this is what we see at the very beginning of how Paul starts this passage here in verse 1. Look there with me. Very beginning of verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So then chapter 5 here, starting with verse 1, it begins a huge, a major turning point, a major transition in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so that's why he begins chapter 5 here the way he does. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What Paul's doing here is he's summarizing everything that he's just said up to this point. In other words, he's summarizing everything that he's just said beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and extending all the way through the end of chapter 4. If you remember there, the, the, the major point of that entire section is that we, meaning both Jew and Gentiles, have been justified by faith in Jesus. You remember what that word justified means, right? It means to be declared righteous. It, it means that we have, been, we have been freed from all charges against us. We've been once and for all declared to be innocent and not guilty in the sight of God and instead perfectly righteous in God's, in God's sight. And the reason that God's able to do that, though, as we saw over the last few weeks, is because of Jesus. That the guilt and the punishment that we deserve for our sins was placed upon Jesus, and so God condemned Jesus in our place. And in return then, God credited to us Jesus' righteousness. So in this way, the innocent person, Jesus, was condemned as guilty, and the guilty person, us, was declared to be innocent. And the way that God was able to do that was through Jesus, through the death of Jesus. But the point that we saw over the last few chapters up to this point is this is only true for those who have faith in Jesus. Meaning those who trust and rely upon Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in their place. That's the only way to obtain this righteous verdict. It's not by doing works of the law. It's not by becoming a Jew. It's not based upon one's race, one's gender, one's ethnicity. Instead, our justification is based upon our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So that was the whole point, right? Chapter 1, verse 18, extending all the way through the end of chapter 4. Now in chapter 5 is this huge turning point. And he says, 
since that is true, meaning since we've, we've, we've been justified by faith, since that is true, then here are the benefits or the results that come with being justified by faith. And he mentions three of them. He, he mentions three results or three benefits that come with as a result of us being justified by faith in Jesus. And the first benefit or the result of being justified by faith is this. And you see this on your hand out there, is that we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Look at the rest of verse one and, and what Paul says there. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since that's true, here's the benefit or the result of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Key word there, obviously, is peace. And it's important to understand what Paul means by the word peace here. He, he's not referring to here to some sort of subjective peace. He, he's not referring to the peace that God gives us in our hearts. So that he's not referring to this inner sort of, of subjective peace that we might feel in our hearts that, that God gives us that we experience in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, in times of trial and hardship, that we have this inner sort of peace. Like that's true, God gives that to us, but that's not the specific peace that is referring to um, within, within the context here. Instead, the peace that Paul's referring to here is objective peace. It's the actual objective peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, think about it this way. Before our faith in Jesus, we were enemies of God. Going back to Romans chapter one. We were enemies of God. God's wrath was against us. God opposed us. God was angry with us. God was at war with us. We were his enemy. But then Jesus comes, and now through Jesus' death on the cross and our faith in him, now we've been reconciled to God. And therefore, now we have peace with God. And the reason that we've been, put all this together, the reason now that we have been reconciled to God, now that we have peace with God, is because we've been justified by God. We've been declared innocent by God and righteous by God and free from all charges by God. And since that's true then, God's wrath isn't against us anymore. We're not his enemy anymore. His war against us is over. And now we're at peace and reconciled with him. But not only that, like it gets better. Secondly, since we have been justified by faith, we also have favor with God. And that's what Paul goes on to say there in verse two. Look there with me. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So not only do we have peace with God, we also have favor with God. Like that, that's what the word grace means, right? It means God's unmerited, undeserved favor. We, we don't work for it. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. God just gives it to us. He just gives us his favor. But the, but the point, and this is interesting here, the point Paul wants to highlight here is not only that we've obtained access into this grace or we've, or we've obtained access into this favor, he says we stand in it, meaning we live in it. We, we can't be moved from it. Like it's continual, it's ongoing because because we stand firm in it. 
And just, just put all that together, right? Especially if you're, if you're a Christian here this morning. I just feel the weight of, of these first two results, these first two benefits of being justified by faith. Like you are at peace with God. He's not at war against you anymore. He doesn't oppose you anymore. He's not angry with you anymore. And you have his favor, his ongoing, continual favor. You don't just, you don't just dip a toe into his favor and, and get out. You stand in his favor. And like this is objectively always true. No matter if you feel like it or not. Like you have peace with God and favor with God, not only when you're doing well spiritually, but also when you're not doing well spiritually. You have peace with God and favor with God, not only when you resist temptation, but also when you don't resist temptation. You have peace with God and favor with God, not only when you've been a good parent, but also when you've blown it as a parent. Like that's just objectively true. That's just your standing. This is just your position before God. Why? Because you've been justified once and for all by God. And for your position and standing, it's never going to change. It's never going to fluctuate like even one iota, one, one degree, one inch. And the reason it won't ever fluctuate or change is because God's favor and you being at peace with him, it's not ultimately dependent upon you. Like if it was ultimately dependent upon you, you being at peace with him and his favor of you is going to be all over the place depending upon your performance and how well you're doing that day. Well, thank God it's not ultimately dependent upon you. Instead, it's ultimately dependent upon Jesus. Not your performance, but Jesus' performance for you through his death on the cross which ultimately led to your justification and you being at peace with God and God's favor resting upon you. Since all of that is true, right? Here's the effect then that that should have on our lives. We see it in the rest of verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, remember what this word hope means. It's not just something you're wishing. You're just hoping happens. And so this word hope, it's a a guarantee. Like it's a firm confidence. It's it's assurance. It's certainty that we're going to see and experience the glory of God. Which within context, we're going to see this this whole idea of glory of God. It's a reference to the eternal state of glory. Glory. That's going to come when when Christ returns and and we're glorified and and we enter into God's glory. And this right here, this is the effect. Just put all this together. This This is the effect right here that being justified by God and being at peace with God and having God's favor is to have on our lives. It's to give us confidence. It's to give us assurance and certainty. Like right now, right right in the here and now, that when the day of judgment comes, that we're going to be spared from God's wrath and we're going to enter into his glory. It's not something we have to hope for and wish for. It's something that's guaranteed and that we can be sure of because we've been justified by faith in Christ. And therefore, we've been reconciled to God and are now at peace with God. 
and God's favor rests upon us, and we stand in it. And so, therefore, we can be confident and sure when the day of judgment comes then that we'll be spared from his wrath and enter into his glory. Paul reiterates this truth. You look, truth, if you look all the way down there to verse, to verse 9, really all the way through verse 11, that what Paul does here is he bookends this entire passage, verses 1 through 11, with, with this truth, that those who've been justified by God could be confident and sure that they're going to be glorified and escape God's wrath on the day of judgment. So, so look at verse 9 there and see how he repeats these themes and, and this same truth in, that, he, that he mentions there and begins with in verses 1 and 2. Look, so look at, look at verse 9 and see these same themes repeated. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Meaning, if you've been justified then you can be confident and sure that you're going to be glorified and saved from God's wrath on the day of judgment. Those that God justifies, he glorifies. He repeats the same theme and same truth in verse 10. Look there, he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, so at peace with God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, meaning at peace with God, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, those who have been reconciled to God and are at peace with God through Jesus will be saved on the day of judgment and spared from God's wrath and enter into his glory. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, Paul bookends that entire passage with this same truth, that those who have been justified by God and reconciled to God by faith in Jesus, they can be confident and sure that they'll be saved and rescued from God's wrath when the day of judgment comes. Like, it's, it's guaranteed. You don't have to wish for that or hope for that. Like, it's going to happen. So put all this together, right? Application. Christian, the next time you begin to be filled with doubt, and the next time you begin to doubt your salvation, or wonder if you're really going to enter into God's glory, and wonder if you're really going to be spared from God's wrath when the day of judgment comes, then when you experience those doubts, like don't look to your feelings, don't look to your emotions, don't look to your circumstances, don't look to how well you behaved or didn't behave this past week, don't compare yourself with others. Instead, look and remember what's objectively always true about you. That because of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, you've once and for all been justified and declared righteous by faith and cleared of all charges. And so then you are no longer God's enemy. Instead, you've been reconciled and are now at peace with him and his favor rests permanently upon you. And now use then those objective truths that are true about your legal standing before God to extinguish the feelings of doubt and to give you a firm confidence and assurance of your salvation. Where, do, where does our assurance come from? It, it comes from being justified by faith. But it gets better. Second place our assurance comes from is, is this. See it on your hand. Our assurance comes from suffering. Now, like, right off the bat, that's weird, right? Let's just be honest. That's weird. That makes sense. Because if you have hair to scratch your hair on your head, you know, 
our assurance comes from suffering. That sounds backwards. Like, what's that about? Well, that's what he says next in verses 3 and 4. Look there with me. He says, not only that, so, so not only do we rejoice in the, in the hope and assured of the, of the hope of the, of the glory that awaits us, but he, but he says, we also rejoice in our sufferings. And again, that's, that's weird. Like, I, I don't know a whole lot of people who rejoice in their sufferings. Like, that doesn't say we rejoice in the, in the midst of our sufferings. It says we rejoice in our sufferings. Like, there's a difference. I'm rejoicing in that suffering. The fact that I'm suffering. I'm rejoicing that I am suffering. That's weird. Like, really weird. But, it, but in, in saying that, but that's what Paul's saying. But, but in saying that, here, here's what he's not saying. He's not, he's not minimizing the, the reality of grief and pain and heartache and the role of lamenting and suffering. That's another sermon and another place. But he is saying that in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the pain and heartache and lamenting in suffering, there's also a rejoicing that can happen in the sufferings as well that you're walking through and that you're experiencing. And look at the reason that he gives for why we can rejoice in our sufferings in the rest of verse 3. He says, because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces, and here's our word, hope. It produces assurance. It produces confidence. So, so this right here is it's the reason why we're, there, why we're able to rejoice in our sufferings. It's, it's because of what the sufferings that we're going through, what it, the chain of events that that suffering ignites and produces in our lives. And, and here's what those chain of events include and what our suffering produces. First, see this on your hand out there, but suffering produces endurance. So this word endurance, it means to bear up under difficulty, to be able to bear up under, under difficulty. And so, so we know this, right? Like suffering, no matter what sort of suffering it is, like it toughens you up. It, it makes you stronger. It produces this sort of endurance and perseverance, and it gives you the ability to, to, to greater withstand and stand up under more difficulty and suffering that you've, you, you've walked through. And so we know this, right? Like Somebody who's, who's suffered in their life just a, a little bit, like it, it just gives them a greater sense and, and ability to be able to endure greater suffering. But as we endure that, or as that suffering produces endurance, it doesn't stop there. That endurance then, look, next, it produces character. And it's important to realize the meaning of this word character here. This word character here, is specifically a reference to proven character or tested character. It's a reference to somebody whose character has been tested and found to be proven. So another way to think about this would be sports. And I'm sorry that all my illustrations are always sports, right? But it's 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 the best I can come up with. And so it's it's a it's a football team, right? Who 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 they've they're four and oh, they've won four games. But the four teams they've beat are all sorry. None of them are very good at all. 
And so they're 4-0. So, so, so some people look at this team and say, well, they haven't been tested. So they're really not proven. They haven't proved themselves, whether they're really a good team or not, because they've, they've just beaten a bunch of sorry teams. But then they go out and they beat the best team in the league. And through that test of playing the best team in the league, they prove that they're a good team. And that's the picture here of what Paul's describing when it comes to our character and what suffering does for us. Suffering tests us. Suffering tests us. Suffering exposes. Suffering reveals the quality and the nature of our faith and of our character. And whether or not our faith and character is real or if it's fake. And so then when suffering comes in our lives and we lose our job or we get that call from the doctor or, or whatever it might be, and as we bear up under it and endure it and faithfully persevere in the midst of it and we keep walking with Jesus and we keep following him, then what that does is it proves that our character, it proves that our faith is genuine, that our faith is real, that, our, that it's not fake. And as that happens, as our character is proven to be real, our faith is proven to be real and not fake, then do you know what that produces in our lives? It produces hope. And remember what this word hope means. It produces an assurance and a confidence that we're really a Christian and not a fake one, and that we've really been justified and reconciled to God and are one day ultimately going to enjoy and enter into the glory of God. Just stay with me. This is one of the, one of the key roles that suffering plays in our lives. Even though we want to escape suffering, even though we don't like suffering, God uses suffering as a means of assurance as a means by which he gives us confidence and certainty and assurance that our faith is real and our faith is genuine. And so therefore, on the day of judgment, we're going to be spared from God's wrath and enter into his glory. How do we know that? Because our faith and our character was proven and shown to be real in the testing and the refining and the furnace of suffering. So as I was studying these particular verses this week, I, I couldn't help but, but think of so many of you within our church who've walked through suffering, who've walked through trials and difficulties, and who faithfully have endured in the midst of it. And through your endurance, your character and your faith have been proven to be genuine. It gets proven to be real. You're not a fake. Your faith is real. Your character is genuine. You're not just trusting in Jesus and singing songs about Jesus because things are going well. Things are easy because God's blessed you. And when he takes it all away and you're crying at night and sad and lonely and anxious and depressed and 
wondering how in the world you're going to continue to keep on keeping on. But you do. And sometimes you just keep on keeping on by just a thread. And you got to drag yourself in here on Sunday mornings. And you got to pry that Bible open in the morning to read it and to pray. But in you doing that, it exposes and reveals that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And your proven character then produces confidence and assurance that you're not a fake, that you're the real thing. And that you've been saved and that you will be saved on the day of judgment when Jesus comes. Suffering is a means by which God uses to give us confidence and assurance of our salvation. By proving our character in the midst of it. Then third and finally, the third and final place assurance comes from is this. You see it on your hand out there. Assurance comes from knowing God loves you. Assurance comes from knowing that God loves you. It's the point Paul makes here starting there in verse 5. Look there with me. He says, he says, and character produces hope. And then he says, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, think about it this way. If you're confident and sure that, that something is true and something, something is going to happen, and you're wrong about it, if you're sure that something's going to happen, but you end up being wrong about it, and it doesn't happen, then how does that make you feel? Well, it makes you feel disappointed, <laughs> but it makes you feel ashamed. It makes you feel shame that you are so naive to place your confidence in something, to be sure of something that wasn't even true, that didn't even happen. What Paul's saying here is, is that is not the case for us as Christians. And the reason that we know that's, that's not going to be the case for us as Christians is because the thing that we're hoping in, it's sure, it's, it's certain it's guaranteed. In other words, our hope of being spared from God's wrath and entering in his glory, it's sure and certain and guaranteed. And here's how we can know that. Here's how we can, why we can be sure and confident and, 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 and sure that, that God's going to rescue us from his wrath and, and that we're going to enter into his glory and why, and why we can be sure that our hope isn't going to be, our hope isn't going to put us to shame. Here's why we can be certain and sure of that. Paul, Paul tells us in the rest of verse 5. Look there with me. He says, hope does not, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That, that right there, this is huge here. This right here is why we can be confident and sure that we're going to enter into God's glory. And while we can be sure and confident that we're going to be spared from God's wrath, we can be confident and sure of that because God loves us. And if God loves us, 
then when we get to the day of judgment, then we can be sure and confident that he's not going to pour out his wrath upon us and keep us out of his glory. And so we can be sure and confident that we're going to be spared from his wrath and enter into his glory. And so then it's important here, like make this connection here that Paul's making here. He's making the connection. He's connecting the certainty of God's love for us and our assurance of salvation. In other words, our confidence and assurance that we'll enter into God's glory is connected to and dependent upon God's love for us. Which means this. If you struggle with believing that God really loves you, you're never going to be sure of your salvation. If you struggle with just confidently believing that the holy God of the universe deeply and intimately and personally loves you, then you're never going to be sure of your salvation. You're never going to be confident of your salvation. Because why in the world would a God who you're not for sure if he really loves you save you and spare you from his wrath on the day of judgment? So then part of you being sure of your salvation is being confident in God's love for you. And this, this is the main point. This is the main point that we see in verses 5 through verse 8 here. That within these verses here, Paul's going to give two reasons for why we can be sure and confident that God loves us. And the first reason he gives is this. We saw it at the very end of verse 5. I just, I just read that, those, that, the end of verse 5 there, that, that verse there. But the first reason we can be sure that God loves us is this. You see it on your hand out there. is because we know that God loves us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is really important because this is one of the, the, the significant roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. That one of the roles of the Spirit is to pour God's love into our hearts and thereby give us an inner sense, an inner personal sense of assurance and confirmation that God loves us. In other words, Douglas Moo, he's a New Testament scholar in his commentary on Romans, he describes it this way. He says, what Paul is describing here is this internal, subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love them. Like th this doesn't mean then that, that, there's, that you live in this constant state of warm fuzzies all the time. Everybody, everybody with me? But it does mean that we're able to personally experience God's love for us by, by, by the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love for us in our hearts. And we sensing that and experiencing that in a subjective sort of way in our hearts. And one of the reasons that God does this for us is to give us assurance and confidence and certainty that we're really saved and that our, and that our hope isn't going to put us to shame 
but instead we're really going to enter into his glory and we're going to be spared from his wrath. And so the first way that we can know and be sure that God loves us is because the Holy Spirit pours out God's love for us in our hearts in a subjective sense, and subjective sort of, of way. Second reason then that we can know God loves us is this. You see it on your hand out there. We know God loves us because he demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus to die in our place even when we were sinners. So what we see there starting in verse 6. Look there with me. Paul writes, for while we were still weak. The word weak there means helpless. It means impotent. It means powerless. It means unable. And what he's talking about here is that we were helpless and unable to save ourselves from God's wrath. While we were helpless, weak, unable, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So then put all that together there. What what Paul's saying here and the logic that Paul is using here is this. When When it comes to us as humans, most of us wouldn't die for for a person just because they're righteous, meaning just because they're just and, and upright and, and righteous. Most of us wouldn't die for just a person, just because, or wouldn't die for a person just because they're righteous, right? I mean, it's good to be righteous, like, yes, be, be righteous, but most of us wouldn't die for a person just because they're, die for, for a person just because they're righteous. If someone were good, though, the word good here has the idea of being generous, being kind, being giving, being benevolent, and us benefiting from that. We might die for that person. We, we might lay down our lives for that person. And so then that's, that's how we as humans love each other. We, we might possibly die for a good, kind, generous, benevolent person that we benefit from. We, we might get, lay our lives down for that sort of person. That's how us as humans love and demonstrate our love. When it comes to God, though, like he demonstrated his love for us, not, not by sending Jesus to die for us when we were good or when we were righteous. Instead, he demonstrated his love for, his love for us by sending Jesus to die for us when we were ungodly, like when we were sinners. In other words, God sending Jesus to die for us isn't like me or you laying down your life for, if you're married, for your wife or for your kids. That's not what God's love for us is like. Instead, what God's love for us is like, it's like you and me laying down our lives for a terrorist who murdered our wife or kids. That's what God's love for us is like. It's it's that sort of love. Like, I hate to get all morbid, but imagine, like, a terrorist coming in and murdering your spouse or murdering, again, I don't mean to, sorry, best illustration I could come up with. Murdering your wife, murdering, murdering your kids and, 
And then you, being at court, and the judge about to pronounce his sentence upon that terrorist, and you saying, I'll take his place. And I'll be judged in his place. And I'll be condemned in his place. That's what God did for us in Christ. That's the love that God demonstrated for you and for me in Christ. And since that's true then, you never have to question God's love for you. You never have to wonder if God loves you. Like if you ever wonder if God loves you, don't don't look at your circumstances. Don't trust your feelings. Instead, if you ever wonder if God loves you, like just look at the cross. Like the cross is proof exhibit A of how much God loves you. And the reality then of his love for you that he's demonstrated for you through his work on the cross then should give you a great assurance and confidence that your hope will never be put to shame. And it should remind you that the same God that loved you by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you is the same God that will love you at his judgment and will spare you from his wrath and receive you into his glory. I I pray, I, I, I know like all of us here this morning, if you're a Christian here this morning, we're all different, right? We, we all have different levels of sensitivity when it comes to our, our own conscience. We're all more introspective than, than some are more introspective than others. Some wrestle with this whole idea of, of doubt and uncertainty more than others when it comes to your salvation. But if you're a true Christian here this morning, I pray that you would allow these truths and you would allow and see where this sort of firm confidence and assurance comes from and that you would continue to run there and continue to, to, to go there to remind you of these truths, to help extinguish the doubt and uncertainty that begins to filter in your mind as you begin to wrestle and doubt whether or not God will really save you in the end. Thomas Brooks, he was an old Puritan in the 17th century. He wrote this, and I conclude with these words that summarize and sum up everything we've looked at this morning. He said, if you would strengthen and maintain your assurance, then see to it that your hearts run more out to Christ than to assurance, to the sun than to the beams, to the fountain than to the stream to the root than to the branch, to the cause than to the effect. Assurance is sweet, but Christ is more sweet. Assurance is lovely, but Christ is altogether lovely. Assurance is precious, but Christ is most precious. Therefore, let thy, heart, let thy eye and heart, first, most, and last, be fixed upon Christ. Then will assurance bed and board with I pray that that would be true of all that we've seen this morning. That instead of being so caught up in running after assurance, that instead we would run to Christ and to the objective truths of what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us through him justifying us by faith and the love that God has demonstrated 
to us through his death for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word and for your desire to give us hope, to give us confidence and assurance. Lord, your desire isn't that we, you would leave us here doubting and being uncertain and just wishing and hoping that when that day comes, that we, that we, that we make it through, that we make it through the door, that you let us into your kingdom, that you spare us from your wrath, and that we enter into your glory. But instead, you tell us and you show us through your passage in Scripture this morning that we can have that confidence and assurance and that we can have that now. And Lord, that that confidence and assurance doesn't ultimately depend upon us, but it ultimately depends upon Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And so, Lord, let us run to him. Let us fix our eyes upon him. Let us drink deeply from the well of the gospel and the truths of the gospel and the objective realities of our standing and our position before you because of the gospel. And let that give us the confidence and assurance that we need today as we look ahead to the day of judgment that is to come. And the hope and the assurance that we have that you will rescue and save us from that day. Because we live now justified and reconciled and at peace with you. And stand in your favor and in your love. And that will be true not only today, but it will also be true on that day as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.